Sunday. So when we get to that point, uh, as usual, we'll just have people come up and take some of the elements which are all together, and then we'll go back and we'll partake of the communion together. Uh, until then, we're going to be looking at a few passages, and I'll try and keep you appraised of where we're going. But initially, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, and, and our voyage through the Lord's Prayer, this is the last one. And you're going, I never could possibly believe you could have this many messages out of the Lord's Prayer. Well, there is. And so we're going to be doing the last one, which reads, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And it might be helpful for you as an audience to know that in the Greek, and you don't care about the Greek word, but it is helpful to know that in the Greek, uh, temptation, the word temptation, is a neutral word. It doesn't refer to good. It doesn't refer to evil. Our English word, when you use temptation, it refers to evil, being tempted to do something evil. But in the Greek, it's neutral. Now, what's, what's interesting is to pray rightly, we need to understand the types of temptation that exist because there are several. And I have them listed in the back of your bulletin. That probably would be helpful, and I didn't want you to miss them, so I thought, well, I'll just write them in there. And that way you can kind of know where I'm going in regards to this. Uh, you can see the three forms of temptation. We're going to kind of elaborate on those as we go along. But the thing that is interesting to know is the word temptation has different meanings within its context. Different words do have different meanings. Let me give you one. Marriage has different meanings in different contexts. For example, I married South. And we all agree with that. But I have married dozens of people. So you see the different meaning? And we all understand that in the context, that word means different things. Because when I say, well, I've married dozens of people, you go, well, you're a pastor, you're married to dozens of people. And then I say, I'm married to my wife, you go, well, oh, okay, that makes sense. And in our English, we can refer back and forth on those real easy without even thinking about them, knowing they have a different meaning. It's the same thing with temptation. Temptation has a different meaning depending on the context on which it's used and can be one of three contexts. So that's why I'm making such a big deal about temptation and the context that it's in because if you don't know the context, then you don't know really what the meaning of temptation is. So as we go through it, you'll see that there are three types of temptations and the first one is a temptation from God. We can call that a trial, or an ordeal, or a testing. James 1, and we're going to be referring to James quite a few times in this particular message. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You could also say that there was a testing with Abraham when he was asked to sacrifice Isaac. And because it was a testing, it was an ordeal, it was a trial. And it is interesting when you look at Deuteronomy, and I, and I have the passage right here, Deuteronomy made it very clear regarding testing from God to the Israelite people. It says, Deuteronomy 13, 
If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, it comes to pass. And he says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So there is a temptation that clearly is a testing from God. A second type of a temptation is a temptation to sin or a temptation to do evil. James, again, is instructive on this where it says, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. When you have a temptation to sin, that is where our individual evil desires kick in, and we do it. Why? Because. An example would be Achan. If you remember, and I'll give you a little background on this since I've been studying it, and I don't expect that you have been, so I just won't throw it out there and let it lay. I'll kind of explain it. Achan in Joshua, the Israelites were going to take possession of the land, and they had walked around Jericho, and they'd done all they did. The walls of Jericho fell. They destroyed everything, and they were supposed to destroy everything and as a giving it, giving it over the destruction of the city to God. It was all cattle, people, wealth, everything. But Achan took some silver and gold and a robe, a very fine robe, and hid it in his tent. Then a few days later, the Israelites go out to, to conquer the city of Ai, and they said, oh, we only need two or, two or 3,000 people to conquer the city because it's just a small city. And the Israelites were routed. They, they lost some 36 men in that particular battle. And then there was an exchange with the Lord. What have we done? And the Lord says, there's evil among you. Someone has, has given in to temptation, and that was Achan. And then the, he was discovered, his whole family and his cattle and all his belongings, his kids, his wives, everything was destroyed. Then the fierce anger of the Lord was turned away. That's one example of, of giving in to an evil temptation or an evil desire. Another would be Ananias and Sapphira. It's the beginning of the church. And they each came separately of their own free will, and they gave a gift to the church. And the question was asked, is this the full amount of the price of the property that you sold? And they went, yeah, yeah, it's the full amount. They wanted to look better than they actually were in the eyes of the people they were giving it to. And as we both know, Ananias and Sapphira, separately, they both died because they were giving in to an evil desire. David and Bathsheba, we talked about that some months ago. There is giving in to a temptation. It is a temptation for evil desires. The third one is the temptation from the devil. It is this temptation that the Lord's prayer is directing. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
It is this type of temptation that the Lord's Prayer is addressing. Temptation from the devil. And we, there aren't very many examples of this in Scripture. One is Job, when in the Job chapter 1, is that talks about the wealth of Job, and, and Satan appears before God in somewhere in that heavenly throne room, and God says, have you seen my servant Job? He's an upright man. In fact, nobody's better than him in all the land. And, and Satan says something to the effect, he goes, of course he is, because you protect him. You put a hedge of protection around him, and nobody can touch him, but if you allow him to lose all that he has, he will curse you to his face. And of course the Lord says, he is in your hands, but don't touch him, meaning his life. Don't touch his life. And then we know the rest of, of the story where he lost everything. And he did not curse the Lord to his face. That was a temptation from the devil. We have one other one, and it's one that is pretty obvious, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil to do something or, or to perform some act. We know what that was about. So the temptation referred to in the Lord's Prayer is in regards to temptation from the devil. You see in your notes where it says submit and resist. The question is, is, is a fair question to ask. What does it mean to submit and resist? Because this comes from... Uh, James, the James chapter, again, James 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves into God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So what does it mean to submit and resist? Because James says, if you do that, the devil will flee from you. Well, we'll get into this. Before I get into the heart of it, for young people, Timothy is, is, is pretty clear. It says, flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, or right living, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And 1 Corinthians says, flee from sexual immorality. That's what, he, that's what the scriptures say. Now, many of us here are old enough to know that if you sin in your youth in things like sexual immorality or some of the other issues that have been talked about here, there is a ripple effect that can go for the rest of your life. And when you get to be our age, you go, oh yeah. But the youth, they go, oh, it's no big deal. It's no, you'd be fine. And you go, no, no, it'll be fine. There's gonna be a ripple effect. For the rest of your life, you're gonna be dealing with aspects of this. But, to go back to the original question, what does it mean to submit and resist? Well, there are several things. And the first one that comes to mind is we are to have a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not just a flippant deal where, oh yeah, you know, I'm saved. It's do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Secondly, are you involved in prayer? And how well do you know your Bible? Those are the, the three areas that come to mind right away, is if you want to submit, you have to know who you're submitting to. If you want to surrender your life to someone, who is that someone, and what is that someone like? It's knowing scripture and being involved in prayer. And certainly we are to resist the devil, but we can only do this successfully after submitting to God himself. There are three verses that come to mind regarding this submitting and resisting. 
The first one is in John 15 where it says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And in the context, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, You have my word in you, and you are clean because of this. So we, it's easy to extrapolate, easy to, to, to continue that and say, If God's word is in us, and we live according to God's word, like the psalm I read this morning, Psalm 119, is we obey his precepts, we obey his commands, we know his word. In fact, it said it, it, said it very clearly. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word, knowing God's word. A second verse that is going to be really applicable is in Psalm 19, 119, verse 11. It says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's easy to sin against God, especially when you don't know what his word has to say. And the third one is a, a very common verse that all of you should be familiar with. is in Ephesians 6. It says this in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, the, and in his mighty power, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It says it right there. And then it talks about uh, we do not uh, fight against flesh and blood, but against authorities and powers. And so, you know, you put on the, the truth is buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness, the God, shod with the gospel of peace and with faith. That whole passage in Ephesians 6 but it's, it's arming yourself against the schemes of the devil, which the Lord's Prayer addresses. So now, I've talked to you about the three different types of temptation. I've talked about uh, re submitting and resisting. But now I want to talk about the temptations that the Lord went through just a page earlier in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and the reason I want to talk about this is because the devil was tempting Jesus. And if the devil tempted Jesus and we see the response of Jesus, it would be instructive for us. If the Lord's Prayer has to deal with the temptation from the devil, it would be nice to see how the Lord responded to those same temptations from the devil. So we're just going to go through these, albeit in kind of in brevity but it gives you an idea of what our Lord was thinking. So you got, uh, you, have, you have a summary statement in theology. That what I'm going to tell you here in the next sentence is not Bible, but it kind of gives a summary of the Bible, and it isn't a perfect summary, but I think it works pretty well. There was a, a theologian, a scholar, who died in 1274, a long time ago, okay, long, long time ago, by the name of Thomas Aquinas. And you surely don't have to remember that, and it won't be on our test. But he summarized where various temptations come from, and he said they come from three areas. They come from the flesh, they come from the world, and they come from the devil. That is the three areas that he summarized where temptations come from. And in the... In the, the Bulletin notes, I'm going to swap number one and number two. I'm going to talk about temptations of the flesh first, and then I'll do temptations of the world second, just so you don't get lost. I should have flipped those around. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus, this is right after he was baptized, immediately after he was baptized, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I want to make a fine distinction. This is, this is where theologians, they like to split theological hairs, but I think it's important for you to know this. there is a fine distinction here. Jesus did not have a sinful nature as we do. So he could not be tempted by a sinful nature like you and I are. Neither could Jesus be tempted by what the world has to offer because he had no point of contact in himself with what the world had to offer. He didn't have a sinful nature. If Jesus was to be tempted at all, the temptation had to come to him from a direct encounter with the devil, just like Adam and Eve, who before they sinned did not have a sin nature. So they were tempted directly by the devil himself. Then, obviously, they had a sinful nature. Now, I'll give you just a, a very brief backdrop. You have Jerusalem, and if you go east of Jerusalem, there is a stretch there. It's about 35 miles long and 15 miles wide, and it's called the Wilderness of Judea. And it is the, probably the most lonely and alone place you can find in all of Israel. It's 35 miles by 12 miles. It's, it's east of Jerusalem, and it's there you have heat, you have scorpions, you have wild animals, you have very little to drink, you've got to know what you're doing. And it was there that Jesus was sent immediately after he was baptized in the Jordan River. There could have been no better place if you want to lack comfort and be more isolated. It's just not a nice place. Now, I want to contrast that with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lived in absolute perfection. They had no problems. It was a perfect environment, and the devil came and Adam fell. We now have Jesus in exactly the opposite environment. It is isolated, it is hot, is alone. He, he is not eating for 40 days, and he succeeds against the temptation of the devil. That is remarkable, and it tends, it tends to make up, it tends to prove the point that spiritual and moral failures are caused by character and response to temptation and not circumstances. It tends to lead a person to believe that, but we'll leave that for now. When you look at the three temptations of Jesus, each one of them is responded to where Jesus says, it is written. When I was talking about submitting and resisting, I said, have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus Christ had a very close relationship with God the Father. I said, you need to pray. Jesus prayed. I said, you need to know God's word. And in these, these responses to temptation, Jesus says, it is written. And he quoted scripture. He knew scripture. So the first one is, Stones to bread. Matthew 4 reads. It is written, um, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. 
the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is from Deuteronomy. In fact, each of the responses of Jesus are from the book of Deuteronomy. What Satan was saying in this particular temptation is that, listen, Jesus, even when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, God provided food for them. You're supposedly the son of God. The, the father loves you. He would not care if you would turn these stones to bread because he cares about you, so it's okay if you turn these stones to bread so that you can eat. How can the God the Father love, love the Israelites more than you? Well, the point would have been, if Jesus would have made the stones bread, it would have been in rebellion to God because he, would have, he Jesus, would have believed that God was not providing for him when, indeed, God was. There was a reason for it. Jesus was being tempted to doubt the Father's word, his love, and his provision, or his lack of provision. Satan is essentially saying, why should you starve in the wilderness if you are really God's son? Why would God the Father allow his son to go hungry? And then we see the response of Jesus. The second temptation is the temptation of the world. It goes on and says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, which is called the pinnacle. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. First question I want to answer is, where is the proposed or the hypothetical location of this supposed temple? Well, it's believed to be in Jerusalem, on the east side, on the eastern wall, and Herod at the time was rebuilding the temple, and he, he would make a, a portico going over like a deck. It would go, go out over, and then this, this point here on the extended point would go way down to the Kidron Valley, and it was believed at that point was about 450 feet above the ground. It was way up there. Because if you look on the east side of Jerusalem, where we've been, is you got the wall, and it's a really, really steep hill that goes all the way down to the Kidron Valley. And it's steep. I mean, you, you, you'd have a tough time walking up there without, without stairs. So it was believed that on this wall, Herod was rebuilding the temple, and he had an extension from his residence, and above that was, was the, the pinnacle so that if you, it would extend out over and kind of give shade from the eastern side. That is hypothetical, but it fits with the context of the passage. In fact, early tradition says that James, the head of the Jerusalem church, was martyred by being thrown from that portico and going some 450 feet down, and of course it killed him. Satan was hoping to undermine Jesus' relation to God by saying, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. In other words, prove to the world that you are the Son of God. In the first temptation, stones turning to bread, Satan was saying, Jesus, use your power to solve this. In the second temptation, Satan is telling Jesus, if you don't want to use your power, use the Father's power 
to preserve you and throw yourself down and he'll take care of you. He says, Satan was saying, if you trust God's word, prove the truth of his word by putting him to the test. If you won't use your own divine power to help yourself, let your father use his divine power to help you. Give your father a chance to fulfill the scripture as I just quoted to you. And of course, we know what that response was, is do not put the Lord your God to the test. But make no mistake, make no mistake, folks, a miracle like this, Jesus throwing himself from the pinnacle of the temple, it would have temporarily proved to many Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah. It would have made an impact. Because see, at the time, there was a lot of messiahs that were vying for the allegiance and the followership of people. One was a man by the name of Thaddeus, and he led a group of people from the temple to the Jordan River, which sounds like across the street, only it's not. It's probably 20 miles, a 20-mile walk through the desert to get from Jerusalem to the Jordan River. So it's a long hike. He promised, this Thaddeus guy, promised to split the waters of the Jordan River and after he failed, no one listened to him anymore. Well, there was another guy of Egyptian descent. He claimed that he could lay flat the walls of Jerusalem, which, of course, he wasn't able to do. And he had all his followers disband and go away. Well, there was a third guy. Tradition holds that Simon the Magician, as talked about in Acts 9, Simon the Magician, he tried the same feat with which Satan tempted Jesus, the jumping off of the temple. Yeah, he did it. That's what tradition holds, that Simon the sorcerer jumped off that pinnacle. Uh, he lost his life and his followers. So that didn't work so well. But the point is, there were people vying for followers. They wanted to be viewed as the Messiah. And if Jesus had jumped off the pinnacle and it not killed him, oh, it would have made a big influence temporarily. It would not have lasted. And so you can you could say the, qu the question, well, why, why wouldn't it have lasted? Because Jesus did a whole bunch of miracles. He did tons of miracles. Raising Lazarus, he himself did a lot of miracles. We had the, the baby in a manger. We had the resurrection. To this day, people still won't believe it. So sensationalism and dramatic signs are not necessarily what we need because, in my opinion, I think this can be proved, is when a person wants dramatic signs, it, can, it, it is not to increase their faith. It shows their unbelief. Dramatic signs, such as the resurrection and many of the other signs that Jesus did that I just talked about, for those that are the faithful, it increases their faith. For those that demand a sign, it just shows their level of unbelief. In Matthew 24, 24, it says this about the future that you and I may, may one day face. For false, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. That is yet in the future tense for us. People love to see the dramatic and the sensational. And can you imagine what the newspapers and the TV would do if somebody were able to pull off some of these miracles? 
Remember I talked about Deuteronomy, where Jesus was saying, if a prophet comes among you and he performs these sensational things and these dramatic signs, and then he says, hey, let's go worship other gods that we have not known, do not obey them. And that Matthew 24 passage seems to say that one day we're going to have somebody that's going to be able to perform really miraculous signs, and they're dramatic, and they're sensational, but it is very doubtful. They will point you to Jesus Christ and to worship him. They will want you to worship somebody else. And the Deuteronomy passage and others still applies. The third one, fall down and worship me. The first one, we could say, was the temptation of the flesh, stones to bread. The second was the temptation of the world. It used worldly items. We could say that the pinnacle was a worldly type of item. And then the third was temptation from the devil. Verse 8 of Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And all this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. First, the devil had su su suggested that Jesus uses power, then the Father uses power, and then the devil says, if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. The question is, why? The question to Jesus from the devil to extrapolate it and to expand on it is, Jesus, why should you have to wait for what, what, for what is already rightfully yours, the kingdoms and nations of the world. They're rightfully yours. You deserve to have it now. Why do you submit as a servant when you could reign as a king? I am only offering you what the Father has already promised. Instead of enduring the long, bitter, humiliating, and painful road to the cross, and the even longer wait in heaven for God's time to be complete, Jesus could rule the world right now. Because Jesus did have the world at his disposal right then. But Jesus overcame temptation just as we are to overcome temptation by a relationship with him, by prayer and knowledge of the Bible. So, in conclusion, we could say that the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, could be rewritten Something like this. Keep us from wandering into paths where we will be tempted by the devil. But if he comes, keep us out of his clutches. That's kind of what it means. But even as we pray this, we will be praying knowing that God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, but along with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can bear up under it. So even though we may and will be tempted, we can bear up under it. And finally, the prayer ends, and for those of you, like in my particular Bible, this is not a study Bible. You'll have some of your study Bibles. When I look, I'll go to the exact passage. When I look at the, the exact passage under consideration in Matthew 6, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, after the word one, 
I have a, a letter right there, a little tiny letter, and you go down to the bottom of your Bible down here, and it will say something to the effect, later manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. Some manuscripts did not include that, others did, but you'll see that little, that little spot right there, and you'll also see in the other Gospels it has that as well. So it's just a way that you can look at your Bible and utilize some of the notes in there to give you a little bit fuller account of what the Bible has to offer. But in this particular case, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we need to know that in these uncertain times, and can we agree these are uncertain times like we've never had before, whether it's with COVID and the protests and the riots, and it's, it's on the news all the time. Can we know that the kingdom of God is certain, his power is sufficient for all situations, and his glory will ultimately prevail? When you go back to the Ephesians chapter 6 passage and we're to put on the armor of God, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and authorities as it clarifies just who the enemy is. And I think we are experiencing that right now. I want to shift gears now, and I'm going to prepare our hearts for communion and I want to give, as I have customarily done over the last several months, I want to give kind of an ongoing narrative of what it was like when Jesus was uh, on his way to the cross. And we've talked about different aspects of this. And today I want to talk about when Jesus was in the garden. And by the way, Gethsemane means, it means wine press. And Jesus and a few of his disciples went Gethsemane and it says that he left his disciples and asked them to pray so that they would not fall into temptation Jesus went about a stone's throw away and when Sal and I went to the garden of Gethsemane there is room for that you could take a stone and be about a stone's throw away if you went to one side to the other side and those plants have just been there for hundreds if not thousands of years I mean they're, they're just ancient Jesus went into the garden, and it says in Luke 22, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And this is a medical condition. It's a name about this long. You don't care about that. But the point is, medically, when a person is under heavy emotional distress, what can happen is the subcutaneous layers of blood under the skin can burst little microscopic areas of blood in your, in your blood veins can burst, it mingles with your sweat, and it drops on the ground looking like drops of sweat. So the question before we partake of communion is, why was Jesus feeling such agony? Why was he in such heightened emotional distress? Well, each of you could be sitting there and going, well, duh. He was, ready to be, he was ready to be crucified. That's true. But lots and lots of people were crucified. And we don't know hardly any of them that had great drops of blood coming off of them. Thousands of people have been crucified before. And I'm not saying that is, that is a minor thing. It's a huge thing to be crucified. But lots of people were crucified. 
and they did not have this problem. The second, the second reason you could bring up is, well, maybe Jesus was having second thoughts. Maybe he was in such agony because he was doubting, do I really want to do this? But we see also in chapter, in chapter 12 in John, it says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. That was the very reason Jesus came. So I don't believe that Jesus was having second thoughts. But yet in the garden, Jesus prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. What did Jesus mean? We know that he was feeling agony. He know, we know that he prayed, Can you let this cup pass from me? And I, I believe our answer is in the meaning of the word cup. In the New Testament, or rather in the Old Testament, the cup, if you want to put it in quotes, the cup was a well-known Old Testament symbol of divine wrath against sin. It was well-known. And in this particular case, what is the cup? It's not merely death. It's not the physical pain of the cross. It's not the scourging or the humiliation it's not the horrible thirst or the torture or having the nails driven into his body. It's not even the disgrace of being spat upon, although all of those are horrible. It was not that. What it is all about is Jesus was going to take on all of the sin of all the righteous from all time he was going to be taking it on himself. And in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Jesus would become sin for us. The, the theological word is sin was imputed to Jesus. And what that means is the sin of all the world was laid on Jesus, and Jesus was now responsible he was treated like it was his sin. And make no mistake, audience, make no mistake that the full force of God's fury was against that sin. That was why Jesus was feeling such agony. That was why he said, Father, save me from this hour, or please, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me because... He was going to experience the full wrath of God for the sin of the world. That's why he was in such agony in the garden. And as we partake, it would be helpful, helpful for us to remember that your sin and my sin was part of that agony that Jesus experienced on the cross. So please, Paul, if we start with you, come on up and we will get the elements and then we can continue. And Steve, if you have anything to play... Now would be a good time. If you don't, that's fine.
purpose of giving you that kind of that historical analysis of why Jesus experienced such agony in the garden was to give you a feel for the pressure and the pain, the loneliness and the isolation that Jesus would experience because he would take the full force of God's fury. And this little cracker that we have, it represents the body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that body was broken for you and for me. Let's partake together. Jesus also said that this cup represents my body, which was broken for you. We are to have take the bread in remembrance of him. We are to take the juice in remembrance of him as we remember for what he did for us. So let's partake together. Let's pray together. Merciful Savior, we thank you that you have not left us without an account. And as your word says, no, no temptation has overtaken us except which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. But along, the along with the temptation, will provide a way of escape so that we can bear up under it. So Father, we thank you for the example of the Lord's Prayer, that we can withstand the schemes of the devil, that we need to submit and resist that we need to have a relationship with you and know our Bible and to pray. And Father, we need to flee. When evil, evil desires come up, we are to flee. But through it all, through all of our failings and shortcomings, we thank you that we can celebrate communion where you have offered a path for us to have uh, even closer communion with the Savior. So Father, we are grateful that we can remember your broken body and your shed blood that was for us individually. So Jesus, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for this day in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please stand.